Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i denne uge talt med den franske økonom Esther Duflo. Hun fik Nobelprisen for et par år siden for sit fuldstændigt oldeles banebrydende arbejde. Hun tilhører en ny generation af økonomer, som udfordrer de antagelser, der har været i hvert fald politisk dominerende i de sidste 3-4 årtier. Derfor er økonomer også en slags fjendebillede for hendes økonomiske forskning, samtidig med, at hun selv er økonom, fordi hun gerne vil forandre verden, og hun har set, hvordan økonomer kan forandre verden. Good afternoon to our listeners and to our viewers here in Denmark, and especially good afternoon to you, Professor Esther Duflo, who is with us from Paris. Thank you so very, very, very much for taking your time and being with us. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me. Og det er lige præcis det, vores samtale handler om. Det handler om, hvordan kan man gøre vores samfund mere solidarisk, socialt retfærdig og frie. Hvordan kan man gøre os alle sammen klogere i fællesskab ved at bruge økonomien på den måde, som Esther Duflo synes er den helt rigtige. God fornøjelse, jeg lover, vi kommer vidt omkring. It, it was a, a very good intellectual experience to read your book, Good Economics for Hard Times. It's a book, it challenges a lot of basic assumptions that we share, we who are not economists, and that we kind of inherited from the conventional wisdom of, of economists. And I feel that this is a book that helps us think for ourselves and think beyond what are called the limits of, of policies. So I want to thank you for that book. That really is an emancipating experience to read it. Thank you so much for the kind words. <laughs> it, it, it's also a book that's very critical of the consensus of economics. Uh, and it made me wonder, why did you yourself become a, a, an economist in the first place? So I became an economist a bit, little bit by accident, um, or let's say at the end of a process. So I, I always wanted to, to play a role in making the world a better place uh, in a very naive kind of a way from when I was a child. And uh, at the same time, I'm, uh, I think I'm suited to be an academic because I'm patient and I like to go till the end of the answer. Then I can't move from thing to thing. So I didn't really see me myself uh, in politics or even in, as an activist. So I didn't know so much what to do. And then I got to spend a year in, in Russia. At the time, I was finishing my undergraduate studies in history and decided to take a little bit of time off to, to see the world. And I was in Russia at the time of the transition. Uh, in fact, precisely when it was started not going all that well, economically and politically. And I found myself... Uh, the research assistants of many team of economists for various reasons. And I saw how amazingly powerful they were in the sense that people were really listening to them. I also saw that, <laughs> frankly, they had no idea. And it was kind of a mixture of fascination <laughs> and uh, terror <laughs> at the power that economists have. And then I thought, okay, let me, you know, maybe I can learn economics and I'll have influence Uh, and then I'll try to be a good one. At the same time, I met Thomas Piketty, who at the time was uh, teaching at MIT. And it, he told me, you know, if you go to MIT, you will learn practical things that you can apply in the world. So these two things, in fact, I met Thomas in Russia. Uh, so these two things combined made me think that's the way. And then I, 
I came back and I, I got ready to start my PhD, to apply and then start my PhD um, at MIT. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned Piketty because I was thinking of him when I read the beginning of your book, because in the capital in the 21st century is also a, a book that wants to open economics to non-economists and invites us to reflect on, on assumptions of of economics that are that are putting limits to our policies and it's kind of I feel like there is a democratic ambition in his way of thinking which I see in your way of, of thinking as well inviting non-economists to think along and and also criticizing assumptions that we usually take for granted you've been working a lot with with your husband who's born in in, in India my own wife she's from Iran so I know about a mixed co- culture marriage And and you've been throughout your research, you've been studying not just Western countries, but developing countries and, and other countries as well. How do you think that shaped your understanding of the conventional wisdom of economists today? Um, I think what uh, what became clear is that there is no the representation that the, the general public as economist is uh, very. Uh, different from what the economic profession actually is. Yeah. And in particular, we, we tend to see, you know, the economists we tend to see on TV represent, tend to represent a fairly narrow part of what the academic profession is, or maybe has very little to do with what the academic profession is doing. So the people we see on TV that are the economists on TV, they are usually actually working for a for a bank, they are the chief economist in a bank, or they are working for an international organization, etc. And they are doing great work, but they represent a fairly narrow uh, consensus of uh, a very traditional economics. And uh, the economics that it's done in, in departments of economics is actually much more varied. And uh, so there is a part of economics that's very conventional and very traditional and uh, 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 maybe similar to the emerged part of the iceberg. But there are also works that are uh, like Thomas' work, Thomas Piketty's work at the interplay of his with history and sociology. And there is also the work that we do with my husband and many, many others in the Poverty Action Lab in the field that is in very close connection to the to the reality of what's going on. So in particular, what we try to do is to Uh, work with partners that can be governments, that can be NGOs, to evaluate the impact of possible ideas to improve public policy, to improve the lives of the very poorest, and to ev- carry out this evaluation with a lot of rigor, both to understand what works and what doesn't work, and also to understand better how people live their life, what are really what makes people tick, and And when you do that, and it's not so much about doing it in India versus doing it in the US or in Denmark, but the moment you do that, you realize that all of our models and all of our intuitions at a very fundamental level, they're wrong. <laughs> they are not wrong, maybe conceptually, but they, they don't get the order of magnitude anywhere wrong. Sometimes they get also the sign wrong in terms of what, uh, uh, what policy would be effective. Um, and It's in learning that that you're learning that our understanding of the economy must be much more empirical and much closer to the facts and to the reality of the grounds. And the picture that is going to come from that is going to be very 
scatter brain, scatter shot. It's not going to give you a nice, smooth narrative that you can use to, ex to explain just about everything. And this maybe had been the dream of economists, you know, a <laughs> few decades ago. And our work clearly made, made, clarified that this is a pipe dream and in fact a dangerous pipe dream that we do need to accept the complexity of the world and we need to be guided by what's happening to real people in real life in order to, to make any progress. But we are not the only one to think like that. <laughs> in fact, a lot of the profession is like that, but, but we almost never hear from them. And in a sense, we wrote this book to give voice to that part of the profession that, it's, that is usually a little bit more silent. Yeah, and when you, when you read the book, you lose a lot of illusions because you say, well, actually, we don't know what creates economic growth. We, we have a few, we know something that will definitely destroy economic growth, but, but there's, there's no one-to-one -one solution. People are not responding directly to economic incentives the way we, we, usually, we usually think about it. So it's like all the easy handles that you have where you think we can move people like that. Uh, on the other hand, you also have this that actually people's preferences can be shaped. They can't be, they, they, they can't be changed. So I have the feeling that you open, that you open a complex, complexity within our understanding of, of, of economics. Do you see yourself as part of a larger movement, not just PGT, but also Gabriel Sugman or Emmanuel says that, that there is kind of a new broader movement that, that is contributing to, to this more complex understanding of the interplay between economics and society? Yes, and it's much broader than even the people you cited who are all doing great work. But I think it's actually quite widespread in the profession, uh, not only among people who do, uh, you know, psychology and economics or economics of social network, which is a bit between uh, sociology and economics or people who do history and economics, uh, but also among just people who do, you know, regular labor economic or public finance or um, when they go to the to, to looking at the data they realize that things are not necessarily the way you were expecting them i'll give you one example one thing that has been a, a very uh, workhorse of most of economics is that what drives people foremost is the response to economic incentive <laughs> so for example uh, if taxes are very high then you really shouldn't be doing any work because well the government is taking uh, taking it uh, away anyways, so why bother? That's why we cannot have taxes that are too high. So that's a central sort of central argument that you will hear among many economists. Conversely, you shouldn't give too much money to the poor because then they'll feel comfortable and instead of working harder, they will work less hard. So giving money to the poor is going to discourage them from, from working hard. And it turns out that both sides of this equation are wrong. <laughs> so at the high income level, people are not particularly discouraged by high taxes. In fact, there is nice uh, data coming both from Denmark and Sweden that makes that quite clear. Um, not only because the level of taxes are high, but looking exploiting uh, uh, various uh, tax reforms. On the, at the other end, uh, the, we had just had a massive natural experiment with the pandemic help for example, in the U.S., the, the first uh, help came in the form of $600 unemployment insurance. They were given weekly to people who lost their job due to the pandemic, regardless of how much money they were making before. 
So some people ended up making more while unemployed than they were making if they kept their job. So this was done, this was passed very quickly with bipartisan support, but immediately Republicans, as well as the Wall Street Journal saying, saying this is crazy, people are gonna stop working, this is going to delay the recovery, because of course, if you pay people not to work, they're gonna stop working, that's like obvious. Mm -hmm. And there is about half a dozen studies looking at the impact of this help on people's labor supply, on people's willingness to return to work. And all of these studies conclude that there was no impact, that if people had a job, uh, they kept it, even if they made less money on the job than uh, unemployment. So this is just like the latest example of people are not primarily motivated by financial incentives in their work. They, are, they want to be working. And if they can, they will continue to be working, even in a pandemic and even if there is this, this, this option. So, uh, so this is you know, now study after study after study, economists have, have discovered a little bit against maybe their own best uh, intuition that people are not very sensitive to financial incentives neither at the top nor at the bottom. And that changes a lot in terms of what you think is good economic policy. Because, well, if you, can, if, if you can tax, then you can tax. That's not going to destroy the economy, that's great. If you can spend in a way that is gonna help people and not make, you know, take them away from the labor market, uh, then that's also very important to know. And I think this is spreading, uh, uh, fairly largely in the profession uh, beyond just this, you know, leaders that you mentioned. And you actually even see it at times in the editorials of the Financial Times, you see that it's actually spreading even to, I think, in, to, the, to the Financial Times. Slowly but surely. So interestingly, <laughs> uh, the Wall Street Journal, it has not spread to them. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 they had a headline in the opinion pages the Wall Street Journal opinion pages is completely separate from the reporting pages. So you might have decent reporting on the CARES Act. And at the same time in the opinion pages, you had a headline saying, report saying, uh, everybody knows that if you pay people not to work, they won't work, except Yale economists. <laughs> and they cited the Yale study, which was one of the uh, several studies that showed that there was no impact of the program on unemployment and they said since they find that they must be wrong because it goes against our intuition which must be correct so basically i have my theory you you have your fact if i don't like your fact then uh, they must be wrong it's not my theory that is incorrect so that was the wall street journal but i think you're right that in other uh, in other even the more you know financial press the economist uh, the financial times you're seeing, you know, at least reporting on this, on these issues, and you're starting seeing uh, a slow shift of the opinions. I was still struck, for example, in the debate on this act and on whether they should renew it, etc. Uh, how it's still quite an instinct for people to say, but you know, people are so sensitive to incentive, we we can't just be too generous to the poor because they are going to to become lazy. That's still something which is not very far from the surface. So what we are learning in the academic profession, it sort of takes a little bit of time to spread. And what we are trying to do in this book is to kind of contribute to this process of, of spreading it. 
And I think it, it also poses a kind of interesting question to economists, because if you think that people respond directly to economic incentives, then you suggest certain policies as an economist, and then you can promise certain political outcomes. And there are always a lot of other complexities at stake. stake. So you can never say, well, the, the advice was wrong. You can always say something else happened. But, but, you know, that role as someone advising the policymakers what to do, e- economists have been extremely influential over the last 30, 40 years through think tanks. And I think very good at it, actually, and very good at shaping public opinion, advising politicians. But when these simple advice advices do not seem to help, when you can't do just this and you can't be sure that people will migrate because they want to earn more money, then you ask, how do economists help shape policies then? How do you see if you want to live up to your ambition? And we should always live up to the promises we make to ourselves when we are young people wanting to change the world. So how do you see your role today as someone contributing, helping, sharing your information, influencing policy and shaping public opinion? Uh, So unfortunately, I have a relatively easy position in this case, because in some sense, my day job is to influence public policy, (laughs) not by giving broad based advice, but by uh, because uh, as we were discussing earlier, I really uh, um, work on evaluating the impact of public policies. So what we do, and not only I, but the, the entire network of researchers that I have, you know, uh, created with uh, uh, with Abhijit Banerjee, we are. It's now a network of about 500 researchers around the world called JPAL. And what we do in JPAL is that we say, well, you know, we can't really ever be sure what is going to work, but on the other hand, we can help you think through it and evaluate it. So we set up randomized controlled trials on issues ranging from education to uh, the environment to politi- uh, you know, corruption, um, how to organize elections. And each of these projects, we now have completed or ongoing um, um, over a thousand of such projects. And each of these projects is very specific. So for example, uh, we have done a lot of projects during the pandemic on how to best message to, to people. If we just send like very light touch message on Facebook, like many people have done, is it going to be effective or not? What should be in the message? This can be tested by randomized control trial relatively rapidly, generating answers that are immediately actionable. So in a sense, we, you know, I'm quite convinced that I don't have the magic bullet to generate economic growth, but I'm also quite convinced that uh, by helping governments, and for my, in my work, it's mostly developing country governments, evaluating and innovating and trying things out, you make progress on specific issues, and it you know, slowly accumulates to a lot of progress. For example, if you're looking at the last three decades before COVID, we had made tremendous progress on the lives of very many poor people. And we tend to forget that because we, the world is generally not going so well, so we tend to be depressed. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the, the, the life of the extremely poor people, uh, child mortality was divided by two, uh, maternal mortality was divided by two, almost every child goes to school. And all of that is the product of a series of slightly better policies, one after the other after the other. And so this 
slice of policy advice I am very comfortable with. And in fact, the more of this culture of learning and challenging assumption and not taking things at face value we can introduce in policymaking, the better policymaking will be. It seems that you're also very, you're, you're very aware of how economists are perceived in public. You said you write in the in beginning of the book that there's a legitimacy crisis of, of economists and they have very low credibility in the public. But you also say we should not stop telling the truth, but it's more useful to express it in a non-judgmental way. It seems there's a lot of reflection implicitly and explicitly in your book, Good Economics for Hard Times, about how to create public discourse, how to create public debate, how to share information. To, how, what are your reflections on that? So that's a great question. So I become, uh, so there is a lot of pessimism, right? Uh, uh, ambient pessimism about the ability of people to listen, yeah. uh, which is, you know, justified. There is the impression that uh, uh, people convince themselves of some view of the world and you cannot uh, ever uh, change their opinion. Facts don't uh, sway them. Uh, and people are, you know, into their echo chamber and get more and more messages that make them more and more insular. And fine, this is a description of the world the way it is, uh, that there is increased polarization. But I, I think it's in part coming, almost stemming from that pessimism. That I think if we say, okay, fine, let's just start being pragmatic and tell people things that are actionable, that they can actually act upon, would they be willing to listen? And so, for example, in the work of COVID, that, uh, that the work that I did recently on COVID that I was mentioning, one of the things we did is to have doctors record very short videos of messages on COVID. And then uh, people listen to them, and then we interview them about their knowledge and whether they are willing to purchase a mask and then subsequent use of uh, social distancing, etc. And what we found is that um, everybody is quite responsive to this information. Um, Republican and Democrat, uh, white people and black people, rural people and urban people, less educated, more educated, poorer, richer, everybody seems to be quite responsive. Uh, so it is not true that even though, you know, what you what you hear in, in the media is that, oh, people have become so politicized that even wearing a mask is a political statement. I'm talking about the U.S. I'm sure it's not true in Denmark. <laughs> and it's true on average, that is, that Republicans are less likely to wear a mask, for example. But it's not true that you cannot, with a very simple message, change their opinion to some extent. So I think we are too prompt to think um, that people are what they express at a given point. Whereas in fact, what they express as a given point is a result of uh, who they spoke to recently and how it's bundled with other issue and whatever anger they, they have. And if you can unbundle it, then you, uh, you actually can make a lot of progress. So I, I very strongly feel that, for example, very few people are racist, as in they're like, strongly uh, think that one race is superior to another, even though many people can utter and believe at some point or another racist statements. And this is very different because if you think that someone is not defined by what they have said, 
then you can start having a conversation with them once you understand where it's coming from. And what we are seeing now in the US is kind of hopeful, or it's very hopeful, mm. because you're seeing the, the debate, the political debate moving in a more normal, usual direction where it's rich people against poor people. So the traditional Republicans do not want to increase taxes and do not want to increase the minimum wage. And everyone who is not wealthy wants that. So for example, in Florida, 60% of people voted for Trump or, or 50 something. But at the same time, 60% of people voted to increase the minimum wage in Florida to $15. So it is very clear that there are many Trump voters who are in favor of redistributive policy, policies that are pro-workers. And if we stop talking about culture war and we start talking about economic war, and in particular, if we can deliver to these people and effectively kind of put the debate in this way, then we'll be back into a more normal, so, so to speak, more normal debate, which is, well, if you have a lot of money, taxes are not good for you. If you have very little money, taxes are good for you. And we can have a debate that makes sense. You know, you see what I mean? Yes, definitely. So this is part of my, my sort of pragmatic optimism, which is talk to people about what matters in their real life, have them debate about that. And then you're going to have realignment that are much more uh, sensible. And I think your book came out two years ago, and it's very interesting to read it now because some of you're supporting the Green New Deal, and you're also saying that, or you're supporting the idea of a Green New Deal, not maybe the specific political program. And you're also suggesting that the best thing would be to have concrete policies helping people, that not big ideological struggles, but concrete policies that are present in people's lives, seeing and they feel that that government is helping him not have a discussion are we for or against government but just making government making solution for them and, and i was thinking when i read your book that actually to a certain extent the pandemic could also be seen as an assistance in a kind of political revival of the legitimacy of government in america that actually right now also because biden is not elizabeth warren or bernie sanders or even Cory Booker, he's just, a, he, he's perceived as a pragmatic guy. I know there are also people that think he's a neoliberal gangster historically, but but it's like he has the chance to make concrete policies being felt and reintroducing government in American life, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about the pandemic. I think it's a, it was, this I felt from the very beginning of the pandemic, that it was a unique moment for the legitimacy of the government. Uh, in the book, we have an entire chapter called Legit.gov, which talks about how, not in the US, but it's also true in Europe, there have been an erosion of the legitimacy of the government. In the US, you know, the beginning of the end is the, is the uh, Reagan uh, statement that government is not the solution, government is the problem. And I should say that economists have been totally complicit in this disaffection towards the governments because economists absolutely love to discuss corruption and political economy. And, and I think what we forget, both us, the profession, and a little bit the media and often the public, <laughs> is that the reason why you have difficulty in governments 
is because governments are always there to solve the problems that nobody else could solve. If it was mm. easy to solve, then the market would have taken care of it. Governments intervenes when uh, it can't be solved by the market. So, for example, government intervenes when you know to 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 say that you cannot pollute beyond a certain level because that's bad for other people, and then it needs somehow to get that law to be respected. But of course, the person who wants to pollute will always want to use the market to try and see if they can put a bribe. So government is always pushing against these very strong forces. In fact, when you see the market trying to do the same thing, it does it very, very poorly. So for example, in the US, there is a, a lot of universities are private. They are trying to do a bit like the government is doing, which is to assign seats, not just based on money, but based on merit. And we talk in the book, a huge scandal of university admission where basically the, the money found a way <laughs> to buy the seats in this private sector. So in general, the government doesn't get good press. That's not true in Denmark. No. Uh, and in fact, the consequence is that in Denmark, people who want to work for the government tend to be the best and the most uh, honest of the students. Whereas in other countries, the government then doesn't select the best people, of course, because the government has such a bad reputation. So sort of it builds upon itself where working for government uh, doesn't become the, the, the best career possible and, and people are skeptical of anything the government wants to do. Then comes the pandemic and boy, do you need the government. <laughs> you need the government to shut down businesses. No, no lockdown without government. You need the government, hopefully before the pandemic, to have enough uh, uh, ICU capacity and uh, you need the government to have... Uh, Uh, paid for the research that gets the vaccine uh, uh, quickly to market um, and so on and so forth. So without government, there, there, there is nothing. So that the government suddenly becomes front and center in people's life. Of course, you need the government to rescue you from the economic damage due to the pandemic. So the government was also very present in the form of helping people uh, financially, both in Europe and, uh, and in the U.S., And the consequence is that it puts, um, it's kind of, it could have gone both ways, uh, which is either it's a huge reinforcement of the legitimacy of government, because <laughs> yeah. if the government is successful, then it will say, oh, it's actually quite important to have a good functioning government. And it, uh, you know, brings back some collective interest of the project of governing. Or somehow, if it doesn't work, then it can further erode the legitimacy. And I think what we are seeing in the US is that uh, they were lucky enough to have the transition at the right time that we are in the first capacity that now you know, people recognize that thanks to government efforts, they will be, uh, um, um, everybody will be vaccinated soon enough that uh, thanks to government rescue, the economic crisis will be short-lived and so on and so forth. So that can be a time where It's not that Americans are ever going to love the government, but where that some amount of trust in the government could be reinstated. Conversely, I think what's happening now in Europe is very scary, which is that with this third wave in particular, for example, in France, where I sit now, it's third wave that is not uh, controlled, um, the vaccination that is not coming, there is a general sense of like, what is the government doing? And that is potentially 
very scary for uh, uh, for what's going on and in, in what might happen in the next few years. Yeah, and I always thought that at the basis of these political ruptures that we've seen in Europe was a sense of a broken promise, that it was not just about economic inequality or immigration, but also that people actually believed that their societies would deliver for them, that they grew up after Les Trons de Glorieuse, they grew up after several decades of growth and, and more opportunity and better education, better health. So they actually believed that they were growing up with progress and, and they realized that, that the society was not delivering on those basic promises. And if you look at it from that perspective, This moment that we're in right now is quite dramatic. You know, half a year ago, we were saying, well, the European Union is back. The European Union is breaking with neoliberalism. They're making huge budgets, helping Southern Europe. Even Angela Merkel is saying, let's screw austerity. We're at a new point. Now it's like, what is the European Union doing? Are they letting us down? Or why is the UK and why is America better at this then? So it seems like this is for the legitimacy of government and for the public trust in those governing them, this is such a crucial moment. Yes, I, that's absolutely right. So I think at the beginning of the pandemic and even actually till maybe uh, uh, December, um, I was fairly optimistic that uh, the, the pandemic would do the same thing to us, that uh, to us here in Europe, that there would be a, a, a more of a sort of a regain in the in the European project and in the government project. In fact, in Italy, in the municipal election, you had sort of a, a, a progress of, of, of parties that were more of the governing party rather than the protest party type. And I think it was in part a response to, you know, a sense that uh, we, we managed to avoid the worst. Uh, in particular, I think the uh, the... In Europe, the, the, the social protection against the pandemic was handled much better than it was in the US, where people kept their employment, they got they kept their paycheck. For them, there really was not much of an economic crisis for individuals because they were, uh, at least the, all of the ones who had a job, because they continued to pay their, to get their wages, even if they had to be furloughed. This was, by the way, at the cost of the most vulnerable who were a little bit abandoned in this, in this process. So that left me with a sense of, okay, you know, the governing project and the European project might, might emerge from this stronger. And now, uh, you know, the, the difficulty with the vaccination uh, and the, the common vaccination policy, in particular in contrast to the UK that just... Uh, did Brexit and his max, <laughs> this is like, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be super costly. Uh, not just because literally people are going to die and are dying now, uh, which is of course the, the biggest cost, uh, but uh, in terms of adhesion to the, to the project, I, it's, unfortunately, I don't have anything <laughs> concrete to say. No. I'm sure it didn't fail because someone wanted it to fail. Uh, There's a series of, of bets that probably landed the wrong way, but but this is a uh, something that I think collectively we need to really be aware of. We need to do much better in other ways in order to uh, to compensate for that for that failure. And I think this is a very difficult experiment to evaluate because there are so many aspects yes, to it. How, that's is civil, <laughs> how is civil society responding? What 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 should be done on, on which political 
on which political level. But if you look at what's happening in, in America and to a certain extent with the European budget, you see the end of austerity. I think that's that's fair to, to say. And you see some huge public investments in, in, in America. And you see some of the myths that you're writing about in, in, in your book are being are just being throw, thrown away. Do, do you feel that that from an economic perspective, and I know this is hard to say, because we said the same thing with the financial crisis 12 years ago, that now something new is happening. But do you, when you see how the the economic economic policies of America is being shaped at the moment, even by a moderate like Joe Biden, do you feel that this is a new economic moment? That something really is fundamentally changing. So I think that uh, uh, after the financial crisis. It was clear very early on that nothing was changing. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the, it was clear very early on that there was a, you know, an immediate response, uh, both in Europe and in, in the U.S., but that the, the fundamental views of the policymaker and of the economists that advised them had not changed. Uh, so, uh, for example, in Europe, there was a very clear, very rapid return to austerity and to fiscal discipline, which came much too early. Uh, but it was obvious, like almost uh, from day, not from day one, but from day three. Meanwhile, in the US, also the package that was put together by the Obama administration was from the very beginning quite conventional. So I think we saw very early on that it was a usual thing, which is, you know, fiscal stimulus in the short term to have, to get out of the crisis and then go back to normal. Whereas now, in part because of what happened in the 2008 crisis and after, what is really the consensus, both in the economic profession and perhaps more importantly in the people who are uh, reading the economic research and advising the politicians, so people in between, yeah. Uh, has shifted because I think there was a recognition that austerity came back too quickly in uh, in Europe and that in US there wasn't enough done to support people financially. So, for example, nothing was done on the minimum wage because it was the orthodoxy at the time that you shouldn't touch it. And the uh, stimulus packet, was, uh, money was doled in small amount of money instead of being given as a big check. And now we... You know, we've, I think we've learned from 2008 that neither economically nor politically, it was a particularly good, uh, good play. And so this is informed by this experience, which you write is not an experiment in the sense that you know, there was just one 2008 crisis, but it's informed by this experience that, uh, that the uh, policymakers are, are, are coming to, to this one. So I'm not entirely sure about Europe because mm -hmm. there is always like the frugal, uh, the frugal Europeans who might want to go back very quickly to uh, to austerity. But in the U.S., you can see in the economic profession, some people are starting to think it's too much. But most people think that most, you know, even very sort of conventional uh, left of center uh, Democrat think that having a, a large stimulus is the way to go, are in favor of an increase in the minimum wage, which is not in the current stimulus, but will continue to be debated, uh, find uh, the child credits a great idea, etc. So these are ideas that seem very left-wing for the US and of course are completely conventional mainstream from, for Europe. 
but you have to the contrast with what the Obama administration was thinking is is large, and in part it's because behind uh, these policies there are many 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 economists who are willing to to come forward and to say it makes sense. So even if you have one Larry Summers who is like crying uh, wolf and because that doesn't look to the similar to the orthodoxy that he was uh, defending when he was treasury secretary under Obama. You have many, many people who saying, don't, don't even worry about it. It'll be fine. And including of course, the treasury secretary with herself, uh, very distinguished economist and, and, and said, look, if there is inflation because we are spending too much, we'll deal with it. And this idea of sort of de-dramatizing the, the, the debate and not saying it has to be this way or that way, this is the way the model is, but saying, let's do what, what needs doing and then we'll deal with potential problems when they come. Uh, again, it seems to be a very sane approach to the current situation we are dealing with. It's going to make a difference to people's lives immediately. And that's also going to buy a little bit of this trust and political capital that they need to move forward and to push the projects that are pretty essential to the survival of the US and of the world. Uh, so the process of political reconciliation as well as uh, dealing with climate change. I have one last question. I, actually, I have 1,000 questions for you, but I only have time for, for, for one more question. In the end of the book, you write that there have been so many progress that we usually just take for granted or don't really notice that we have this, like you said before, this atmosphere of crisis also because some of the progress made is invisible to us in the West because they've been made elsewhere. And I could, I can, from a leftist standpoint, be a little concerned that people in the left are not enough aware of the progress made by trade agreements that actually hundreds of millions have been helped in India, hundreds of millions have been helped in China, that right now there's an alliance between the left and right-wing populists against globalization, against trade agreements, against the old, and that we don't have a kind of a green leftist vision for what trade agreements could look like in, in a new, new world that we think, well, just if, if it's the end of neoliberalism, something must be better that comes after it. How worried are you about this attack on the structure and architecture of globalization and this battle between America, Europe, and China about the trade agreements? I think to some extent it's the product of the opposite problem, which is the angelism of the economic profession and then in turn of politicians that trade is on balance going to help everyone. And this was told and told and told and told and told again. And for people in, poor, in rich countries, it was sold to them as saying, yes, you know, there might be a small decline in wages, but we are going to compensate you some ways and it's all going to be fine. Was in fact, this was forgetting these fundamental problems that, that we discussed before, which is people are not driven mostly by economic incentives. So when people lose their job in North Carolina, for example, even if there is a job for them in New York, <laughs> they were making furniture in North Carolina and they can be a furniture salesman in New York. They don't go. They don't want to change sector. They don't want to move from being a foreman in a furniture workshop to being a sweeper in a furniture shop. They don't want to abandon their social network. These transitions are extraordinarily costly. So I think that as a profession and as a result in the advice that was then given to politicians, 
we really underestimated the cost that trade yeah. has uh, um, imposed on poor people in rich countries. At the same time, I think we also overestimated the benefit for poor people in poor countries, because even in poor countries, for poor people to benefit, they need to move, the things need to be organized, and it's much more difficult than, than it seems. So what's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is not that we should abandon trade, obviously, but the conclusion is that trade policy needs to come with much, much more protection for the people who are hurt by it. And in the in the book, we are talking about a, like a GI bill, a yeah. veterans bill for the victims of trade. And I, I would say the same thing for automation, which is we should recognize that someone who loses their job in North Carolina is a victim for all of us so that we can have more diverse, cheaper furniture. And we should help them as, you know, to thank them, not, uh, not as charity. And the assistance that was given to people who lost their job is minuscule compared to the cost that they experienced. And I think we need to become much, much, much more explicit in helping people. And in particular, that means helping places that get decimated because trade is so local. Industry is very clustered. So it's an entire like community that loses everything. So these places need to be helped. Economists keep saying people, not places. But we forget that people like places. So they don't really want to move and people need to be helped in place to either to stay, honestly, because they like it where it is, or if they are young, to move, to find better opportunities, but to be helped in these moves. And so all of that needs to be incorporated in the trade negotiation as something that if we are going to trade with China, we need to do that as well. Therefore, that might limit how much trade we're willing to do, but uh, that might, uh, it might, we might still be willing to do a lot of trade, but while keeping this protection uh, in place. So I think it's neither kind of for or against trade. It's uh, accompanied trade with everything that the people who are going to be hurt by it need. Another thing is we can use trade a little bit more purposefully. We can use trade as a way to get, for example, workers' protection in the poor countries uh, by imposing some of this uh, in the trade treaties themselves, which will have the consequence of limiting competition because it will be a bit more expensive for poor countries if they have to protect their workers. But it will be to the benefits of the workers who will not, you know, who will live in better conditions, get better salaries, and you know, not burn in factories because nobody respects their worker conditions, etc. So again, that's not a for against trade, but it's being more mindful about the impact of trade on individuals without assuming that people will pick themselves by their bootstrap and figure it out eventually. Well, thank you very much. I'm very glad that you mentioned this because I think that's a beautiful, beautiful part of your book where it says that places in themselves are important and people belong to places and you can't just move people around and educate them and develop them. I think that's just a very beautiful part and very important part. And there's a solidarity with lives in that appreciation of, of places that I thought was very, very inspiring. Thank you so much, Esther Buflo, for taking your time. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Bye-bye. Det var så min samtale med Esther Duflo. Der er mange, der spørger, 
efter de har hørt de her samtaler, hvordan de dog kan støtte information, fordi samtalerne er jo gratis. Og de er jo gratis, fordi vi gerne vil udbrede idéerne, og fordi vi gerne vil udbrede samtalen, og fordi vi gerne vil knytte nogle internationale idéer sammen i dansk offentlighed. Men hvis det er sådan, man meget gerne vil støtte information, og hvis det er sådan, man meget gerne vil læse de her interviews også, så kan jeg anbefale, at man går ind på information.dk-prøvnu. Det vil sige information.dk-prøvnu. Og der kan man tegne et gratis prøveabonnement. Og vi kommer ikke til at tage røven på nogen og liste dem over i noget fast, uden at de har sagt god for det. Så det er fuldstændig og aldeles uden risiko at tegne et prøveabonnement på Dagbladet Information. Det vil sige, at det er ikke helt rigtigt. Der er den risiko, at man bliver afhængig af at læse information og gøre det resten af livet. Det sker for flere og flere, men de betegner det altså som positiv afhængighed. I næste uge skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Et sted hen, som passer rigtig godt til langsomme samtaler. Vi skal tale om bevidsthed, om hvad der adskiller mennesket fra naturen, og hvordan man kan tænke mennesket og naturen på samme tid. Det er filosofen Philip Goff, der sidste år skrev en bestseller, der hedder Galileos Error, som vi er meget, meget heldige med har sagt ja til at tale med os. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.